Yeah, I don't know, man. You ever just feel like life is just catapulting towards like, some greater purpose? The only DJ crazy enough to tattoo Jackie Brown on his ass. This is Michael Mann, and I ride with Extended Clip. Welcome to Extended Clip. I am one of your hosts, Eddie Averill. And I'm JT White. Don't worry, the era of Malcolm being gone from the podcast is over. Uh, he is just so staunchly against the concept of watching a movie that glorifies the man who personally dropped two bombs on Japan that he is uh, excusing himself from this episode of Extended Clip. And honestly, I just have to respect the ethics of the situation. He's like, you can, you can say a lot of things about Malcolm, uh, but... He's certainly principled. There's no doubt about it. Uh, you know, Christopher Nolan has even said that J. Robert Oppenheimer is the most morally ambiguous character uh, that he's ever had as a protagonist. And uh, I would say that Malcolm is the opposite of that. Malcolm's morals, 100% good guy. The topic of today's episode is, of course, the new film by Christopher Nolan, Oppenheimer. JT, do you remember the last time a Christopher Nolan movie came out? I do. I was watching that movie in between uh, the head of you and Malcolm. Not in any sort of weird... Before I realized this is a, a sort of a pause situation. I It was not for any weird sexual-like realm. We were simply watching Tenant at the drive-ins. Uh, and I remember that, that I don't think I have rewatched Tenant since then. Um, but I remember even when we were like talking about it on the pod, for me, that was kind of a movie that even though I was like middle of the road, I like liked it well enough. It did sort of like, I don't know, help me unlock like the cold formalism of Nolan and just sort of. I don't know, find a way in to appreciating him. And with like that sort of being the last note I had been like left on with Nolan, I was super excited about this. Uh, it just from the the get go seemed like source material uh, that he would uh, be able to do like to a T. Um, and, uh, I don't know, in, in my mind, he absolutely delivered. Yeah, thinking back to the release of Tenet, uh, I was, of course, a Nolan skeptic leading up to that. It was when I went on a little Nolan retrospective at home during quarantine leading up to Tenet that I kind of reevaluated him and, you know, got more of the formal pleasures of his work. Uh, especially after ditching cinematographer Wally Pfister for Hoyt van Hoytema. Uh, you know, and the films have had a much more clean and sparse uh, geographical uh, look since then. And I feel like the, uh, the architectural conceits have gotten a lot more interesting in terms of production design of these films. And, uh, you know, maybe I was a little hot on Tenet. Frankly, Tenet, to me, is the movie that symbolizes movies coming back. Uh, you know, we had to see it in a drive-in, but it did play in theaters, in IMAX, during, like, 
I don't want to say the height of the pandemic, but during a part of the pandemic where people were really still moralizing about going to the theaters. Uh, so we saw it in the drive-in, but it was only like four months later that uh, the, the first round of vaccinations came out. And uh, the day I got mine, I saw it again in the theaters indoors. And it was, you know, the first time in whatever two years I had seen a movie in theaters. So Tenet, there's a little bit of sentimentality and excitement and almost like tolerance break aspect to my reaction to that. And then having gone through some of the Nolan movies again uh, leading up to Oppenheimer, I realized maybe it's not as great as I you know proclaimed on the last episode we did on it. Um, it's still very good though, but it's not his best movie or anything because I also rewatched Interstellar, which is really the film that convinces me of Nolan's prowess and his ability to make an actual classic film that will not just stand the test of time because of, you know, film bro 101 types going, this movie has a crazy concept, man. Uh, but the fact that there's like lasting ideas and lasting uh, aesthetic experiments and a really beautiful emotional core that will, you know, uh, in line with the movie last kind of forever. So here we are at Oppenheimer. He's back to serious material here. Uh, much like Dunkirk, uh, focused around the events of World War II. This time it's not a rallying cry for England, though. Thank fucking God. Uh, as much as I like the, the action chops of Dunkirk, this one continues a line of thematic thought throughout his work, uh, kind of making him the mad scientist auteur. Uh, now, stay with me here. Interstellar. He is using, you know, scientific method, of course, is at the core of that film. And uh, it's a film about scientists, of course. And in a way, that film goes so deep into the science part of science fiction uh, that somehow it comes out the black hole of Nolan's emotional core, uh, the other end being a beautiful melodrama that is more emotionally uh, and logically successful than anything that he's done, uh, which is astounding to say because he's always had, you know, perfect logic, not great emotions for the most part. Um, then, you know, so that is using science for emotion. Tenet, that's more on a meta level he's using science. This is a pure uh, physics-based high concept action movie this is all about filmmaking form and pulling off these insane concepts that are very vague ideologically uh, but he is still using the very core of the scientific method and characters introducing uh, or coming upon new scientific ideas trying them out and figuring out their value and their use then here we have science pushed to the brink to find out about morals. Speaking of moral Malcolm, uh, this is a movie about a guy who is troubled by visions of a hidden universe. Robert Oppenheimer is having these flashes while he's studying quantum physics. He's having these flashes that we see that look like Twin Peaks The Return Part 8. They look like the creation sequence from The Tree of Life. Uh, they look like Stan Brakhage got an IMAX camera. You know, they look like anything you could compare it to, possibly. They're incredible, and they're these subjective flashes of the world of splitting an atom, I guess. 
And it's this almost extended montage that lasts this like first 40 minutes or so. But of course, the reason for this film is the moral implication that it brings. Uh, this starts with a Jewish man fighting a war, f- fighting in a race against time against the Nazis. Once Hitler is dead, he's completely uh, lost sight of the track he was on. And, of course, America drops two bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki, two of the probably two, the two worst uh, war crimes in American history, if not world, you know, geopolitical history. Uh, and our, our buddy Oppie has to feel a little bit of guilt. Uh, intensify this guilt with another timeline where Robert Downey Jr. Uh, as Admiral Strauss is kind of trying to tear him down, not just to help Strauss's own image, uh, but also just to kind of fill out some pity revenge uh, from a previous hearing or two. This movie is such a strange structural object, dramatic object, uh, split into however many chapters you want to say it's split into. Um, I, I really like this movie. Um, we'll get into why, but JT, what did you think of this movie? I've only seen it once, uh, so far, but they're playing it, uh, in 70 mil at, um, the Cherry Hill AMC in, uh, New Jersey, which is not that far outside of Philly where I could, uh, split an Uber with some friends, go see Oppie, our, our buddy Oppie again. Um, and yeah, no, instantly just like I connected with it in a way that like I haven't with other Nolan films. I do think that like a lot of it is just like those very expressive sequences you were mentioning uh, in the beginning where he's getting these visions where he's describing like concepts in physics to like friends at like academic friends of his these like abstract visual moments are just like absolutely beautiful and that's intertwined in this like crazy long cross-cutting like montage of like a film one timeline with the kangaroo court like Oppie interrogation is going and then he's there's a story being told there just the way it all interweaves sort of I, I don't want to say necessarily seamlessly because I do agree with you that I think there are some like third act problems but the it's just miraculous to see like storytelling taking place uh in this way and this scale and just like how just formally fresh and like fun it is to like have a movie that is a lot of like talking expository talking and like dialogue to make that compelling on the cut alone is just insanely impressive and also for me I think what I really love is not like the politics of the film necessarily like in terms of what I think Nolan's explicit politics are because that's never like the intention is never the fun part. It's just that what the film actually winds up being I was in the theater like a crowded theater opening night 
and just to see a movie that like comes down like especially like again Robert Downey Jr.'s sort of side plot less compelling than the Oppie main story but like you have Robert Downey Jr.'s character you have Truman like so many characters in American government are kind of depicted as like unequivocally like evil i mean there is like there is that goofy ass moment where um we have like there's the kennedy name drop and it's just like well there was one kid who was against who was against you who thought it was a bad idea alden ehrenreich in pure solo mugging mode in that moment yeah yeah and that's i don't know it's like whatever i i think it's mostly fine for a movie that um, is incredibly cynical of the military industrial complex, like the United States government. And like, I think pretty, like pretty well does justice to like depicting the, 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 the severity of the bomb. I know that I, I was talking to someone who had mentioned like an interview that they had read with Nolan where like he was aware that obviously the audience is going into the movie being like, oh, well, there's there's going to be the big bomb dropping and then they'll probably you'll probably see Hiroshima and Nagasaki and like sort of the blood and guts and like all that stuff. I think it's very smart, obviously, that he doesn't show any of that. I think that either through recreation or real uh, photography, like I think that would be insanely exploitative to include that i think what he ultimately winds up of just sort of honing in on oppenheimer's reaction to that is significantly more powerful and respect him respectful to the victims of uh the atomic bombs there are many things that we can unpack with the bomb testing scene but i feel like the way he pulls the audio um, in that moment also in a, in a weird way, like derives the audience of like the full pleasure they could be getting in that scene there. I I don't know. That was something that it's just to me, just incredibly impressive. The political, uh, like the way the film operates politically for someone like, for coming from Nolan. And I think, again, I don't think it's like reflective necessarily of his own politics, but I feel like it's him trying to do like do justice to the character of Oppenheimer, not do justice in like make him like, like a legacy or whatever bullshit. Like I think he paints him very clearly like cowardly, but he does so with a level of complexity that I feel like is absent from a lot of other Nolan characters. Totally. I I feel like he made an obnoxiously big deal about how morally ambiguous he was as a character, just because Nolan likes to be like, he likes to bait all of his worst fans in all of his interviews. He's always dropping quotes like that, you know, where 
He's like, well, you know, the black and white scenes are uh, objective and the color scenes are subjective and he's the most morally ambiguous character I've ever had. So this really is going to be my best movie. You know, <laughs> he's a uh, he's a great film bro pitch man. Yeah. Um, oh, yeah. But, <laughs> but I think you're you're totally right, JT. He really does paint a great picture of Oppenheimer and it's not just the a grand scale moral ambiguity it also allows you to empathize with him of course because as we were talking about with this very beginning part uh you know he he's purely curious uh and there's many warnings against curiosity but anyone who has a brain like that and is on the verge of a great discovery. You know, that's why Nolan, the mad scientist auteur, is the perfect director for this material. Uh, he's so great at showing that urge for discovery. Uh, like an in interstellar, they always talk about how, you know, they're, they're like uh, the new Lewis and Clark or whatever. Um, and I think that that urge for discovery is a very relatable feeling for a character to have. Another feeling that characters have that for some people is relatable, some not, is, uh, you know, J. Robert Oppenheimer just being addicted to that ooey-gooey pussy. <laughs> yes, absolutely. And uh, how much that shapes his life. And uh, how much that shapes his morality, almost. I mean, one of his great moral reckonings in this is uh, during the kangaroo court you alluded to, which takes up much of the movie. Um, there is a scene where, in a very tense moment, he flashes back uh, to a very pivotal sex scene from early on in the film. But the way the flashback is portrayed, uh, his partner in crime, Florence Pugh, appears riding his penis uh, in front of the said kangaroo court. Uh, it is a tremendously strange scene, of course, made even stranger by the setup. JT, I want to know, a. Uh, this is like a journalistic question, what was the crowd reaction like? At the first sex scene, when Florence Pugh makes him say uh, the ancient phrase that Oppenheimer is so uh, known for before slipping it back in. Was there a laughter? Were um, people really on board with it? Because I laughed way more than I should have, and I felt bad because nobody else laughed. I don't think, yeah, I, I think it was just sort of the surprise of the new, like, there's definitely, I feel like, gasps at at the titties titties coming out uh, sure. uh like th there's the shock there i do not think anyone really laughed at that line i mean certainly i looked over like i saw the movie with nico and his dad and i like turned to both of them and we were we were all grinning <laughs> uh when that uh when the line drop happened because it is i don't know it it is a very funny way to like slip that in but also again like in thinking of it like which like i could find something amusing on that level and just be like okay i like how it's tied to him having this like former like communist lover and like i i to gain to to show the full sense of like his past and it is again also there were definitely laughs when they we cut back to the sex scene happening 
in the kangaroo court. But again, it is like shocking and like a certainly a big move for Nolan to play. One also that is a little goofy, but like I think again, working towards like character psychology and like um doing the best to depict like the internal thought process of the character. I think it's like it, it's 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 a fun move to be like oh okay like he's talking about uh cheating on his wife we're gonna make him like like just to represent like oh you're gonna feel like you're fucking this other woman with your wife in the room like as you're reliving it (laughs) the the total philanderer is something we haven't seen in a nolan protagonist if i recall correctly there's guys who are like bad with women of course but like this is something we've never seen, and it's so funny to me that that is, you know, this is the character we're diving into that with. And the fact that she has him say, I am become death, destroyer of worlds, before uh, she puts it back in is, look, it's funny, and yes, you can just move on with your, you know, with your enjoyment of the film after, but it becomes such a big deal. It becomes this thematic sticking point of, uh, the biggest thing they can hold against him is, of course, his communist ties. Uh, when I say they, I'm talking about one of the numerous timelines in this film. Uh, we've alluded to the phrase kangaroo court many times. This is a hearing to see if Oppenheimer's clearance will be granted once again uh, at the Atomic Energy Commission. Uh, so this hearing is, you know, total bogus and they're clearly just trying to ostracize him and get his clearances revoked uh so this is what springs all of the flashbacks and then also the other courtroom hearing we have is the one with robert downey jr of course so now that that's cleared up um the fact that the biggest thing they have on him of course is his former communist ties and the biggest part of that is his former lover florence pugh uh, who was a you know a big time commie and his his ongoing lust with her uh, among others too. It's pretty funny toward the end where they just throw it in that there was like a third lady he was sleeping with throughout. <laughs> um, but yeah, uh, the fact that like he literally was like, oh okay, so there's like a hot communist girl. I'll kind of like fuck with that for a little bit and that coming back to haunt him is hilarious it's like the worst nightmare of every like a dirtbag left twitter guy who uh, goes corporate or whatever nolan depicting a philanderer i feel like falls like he does it in a very nolan way again it's just like you get the stuff with pew that like happens but then the rest of it that he like is he's just getting puss is just like oh that other line that kind of alludes to it that's not nolan's not like he's focused on the meat and potatoes here like certainly you get like he'll throw a bone to like reference that but like i don't know It, it i thought it was funny that like he's still like he's just like oh he's he's still doing that like just wanted to include that in as well and the relationship with Emily Blunt, of course, is strained from the very beginning, but she does uh, in class. You know, I have to say it kind of flashes back to some uh, vintage, not so great Nolan, I would say, the Emily Blunt stuff. Kind of reminded me of like 
the prestige almost the way uh, that relationships work in that movie and you know her just being like debilitatingly drunk throughout the movie I, I get the tragedy that it's aiming for but it doesn't quite hit uh, I do think the tragedy with the Florence Pugue thing totally works though because we have this situation where you know she commits suicide and uh there's a horrifying scene of, you know, it starts with Oppenheimer hiding in the woods and Emily Blunt finds him and is not even really trying to console him. More just like, you shouldn't be sad about this girl. This is a wrong thing that you did uh, kind of feeling to the conversation. But you have these flashbacks to uh, her drowning herself. And then one of the versions of the flashback it shows, because in classic Nolan fashion, he's almost mimicking late Terrence Malick with the floating camera and lyrical cutting. Uh, and in one of these versions of the scenario, we see this black leather glove forcing Florence's pugs, sorry, forcing Florence Pugue's head into the bath. And, you know, that just like little ounce of conspiratorial Nolan there just goes so far for me. I, I thought that that was just such a jolt into the film uh, yeah, no. right when it starts getting almost too complacent with the normal historical narratives. I, I love that moment. And that, that again, that like the little flash of conspiracy there. It also, the moment works well for me because... It like it just calls like sort of um, is alluding to what happens later in the film with the way uh, Oppie and Truman sort of like have it out. It's like more or less like the same type of thing where he is like he, he when he rolls up into Truman's office after the bombs are dropped and is just like cowering like a bitch and being like I have blood on my hands um Truman is just like get this pussy out of here he's just one of the most famously evil American presidents but like and but he's like out and open about it the scene with Pew where uh, Emily Blunt is like just you're you did something wrong. Like, stop, like, wallowing in it. Like, that's not... You don't have, like, the right... Like, to be, like, kind of, like, sad about it in that way. It does very much so... For me, th those are two shades of the same thing. Yeah, no, Nolan plays them the same way very smartly, of course. And uh, there's plenty of people in the first, you know, hour of the movie that say something along the lines of... You know, you can't lift the rock without being prepared for the snake that's underneath. Uh, you know, Emily Blunt says it to him, and uh, I, I think Robert Downey Jr. says it to him in the scene where he's with Einstein at the Institute or whatever. I, I like that parallel there, but it's back to, for me at least, uh, Nolan using these relationships as like signifiers for the plot more than anything real. And speaking of being a signifier more than anything real, I mean, Gary Oldman as Truman is pathetic. That's like, I hate Gary Oldman's like impersonator mugging phase so much. <laughs> uh, and the other ridiculous performance is fucking Benny Safty. Oh my God. What is going, that is pure mad TV level. Yeah, no, that is, it's wild. It is like in a film that I do truly think is great. Mm-hmm. 
there are many films I love and like many masterpieces that I think have like one bad performance and not to say that this is a masterpiece, but like, it's a pretty great movie. Yeah, no, it's just so weird. Like, it's like, why, why would you cast him? Like, it's like everyone else is doing a pretty decent job. The people that are in like goofy accent mode to be like, Oh, these, this is the, the A team of uh, all the Jewish scientists we could find. Uh, but just Safty is just like, I don't know, just it's, it's so, so bad. Mm, my brother, he, my brother, he direct Good Time, Uncut Gem. He direct new movie with Adam Sandler. <laughs> I do this voice. I have wide hips until someone else gives me another stereotype to play. I mean, maybe maybe that's Mad TV is is a good good comparison there. Someone like snap him up for a sketch show. I'm sure he'd be great there. That's fine. You can do that there. You can do all the voices. Yeah, you could cut together a really good like sketch character reel out of all of Benny Safdie's film performances. Uh, these are just small nits to pick with what I think is verging on a truly great film and what will be one of the best of the year and one of Nolan's best. So let's get back into it. Um, the moral reckoning, the one big scene uh, that you previously alluded to, JT, after the bomb drops. I think this is one of Nolan's greatest feats as a filmmaker. The audio doesn't fully drop out. It's a very like selective mix uh, which I love, you know, there had to be so many microphones going on to isolate all these different sounds or, you know, it's all post whatever. Uh, but still, I think it's such an intricate sound design piece uh, and the way that Oppenheimer is at this like fucking atomic pep rally. It's all these people that are just so fucking stoked that they just dropped the bomb on Hiroshima and their faces start burning after a while as if they were victims. Uh, and it is purely gut-wrenching. And eventually he walks forward and steps onto a body that's like decaying. Uh, this is all subjective, of course, you know, in his dream vision or whatever. Uh, and he steps on a body that's decaying and it like crunches and fades away in a way that feels like the impact of Hiroshima all the way to today is felt in that moment for him, even if the bomb was just dropped. And I, you know, it's a combination of sound design, staging, um, acting, of course. Cillian Murphy's face in this is incredible. This scene in particular, uh, he's not going over the top. He's not doing crazy face acting. Uh, he is a super interior performer in this. Uh, you know, it gets a little ticky at points, but it's it's a very interior performance. And I I think it's fantastic in that scene. And yeah, maybe the best thing Nolan's done on like a, a pure impact level. But I stand by the fact that I think the first 30 minutes or so is maybe the coolest thing he's done since fucking like Inception uh, in terms of cross-cutting and his, you know, Griffith-esque impulses of cross-cutting uh, across multiple planes. Uh, I think that beginning segment... Uh, between the abstract stuff, him going to Europe and like studying Picasso, uh, him in the lab, the Robert Downey Jr. stuff, him back in court as an older guy, like all those things cutting together at once, I think is like 
one of the coolest things he's ever done as a filmmaker. I agree. Uh, that moment there. And I like, again, I feel like that is why it falters a little bit after the, the atomic bomb pep rally, as you put it. Um, because it's just like, that's like, I, again, he, he, he double taps that beat a little bit with the, uh, the, the Einstein moment that we've been, you've been teased throughout the film. You want to know what this motherfucker said? Like, what did they, what, what are they talking about? Um, and again, it's, it's hitting the same beat, but like, and I think it is it still ends on a strong note that's like powerful and effective to me. Again, I'm not sure how much of it is like my association uh, with Einstein is mostly just posters of him like making the one goofy with him with the tongue. Yeah, the tongue sticking out, him doing goofy faces, and that's why <laughs> that's why I couldn't really take him all that seriously in this movie. It just feels like the uh, like oh, you get a cameo from the big smart guy. Yeah, my main association with Einstein is like people sarcastically calling a dumb guy Einstein. And it's just like that part does feel like it, it is a character that does feel a little goofy, but I returning to that beat is solid. But again, I think it's much more effective with like what you're saying where like just the sound design is insane and just so impressive. And it's like moments again, that moment and for the the him fucking pew in front of uh emily blunt it's just like the way he's able to literal literalize like character psychology in the image and sound design is just just insanely effective in this movie mm-hmm. and uh i don't know some of some of his strongest work so we do have to talk about the third act though where a lot of the opinions kind of have differed so far I think there is a palpable sense of paranoia that really mounts after the atomic pep rally. It's very good. It's just not as great as the first two hours of the movie, in my opinion. Um, So the last hour or so pretty much focuses back on the, uh, as we take a shot every time we say kangaroo court on this podcast, uh, cutting between (laughs) that and uh, Robert Downey Jr., you know, trying to be confirmed for an appointment, uh, you know, in the uh, federal government. And uh, it's like, you know, final statement time, guys. It's a little, I don't know, it's it's weird. It both feels like an addendum after an incredible story has basically been told by now. Uh, and it kind of feels obligatory too. like, we have to wrap these things up. We have to have our final statements in court. I think that those things are all good. And I really do like the paranoia that comes with it. If I'm going Soderbergh mode and God help me, if Nolan ever hears this fucking kill me. Uh, but if I were to go Steven Soderbergh mode and want to cut this movie up for him, it would be as simple as putting that atomic pep rally moral reckoning sequence at the very end. You don't have to cut anything from this movie. I still like the third hour being mainly paranoia and guilt, even just from the atomic test. All you need is the test. The guilt that 
is palpable from the test sequence is enough. You know, uh, think back to Twin Peaks, The Return Part 8. That's just from a test in New Mexico. So that would be my thing is just ending with that because and I think it's also that's the best like, way to walk out of the theater with the, the intended effect of the movie. Like but, when you know, that's just that's a that's a nitpick when you're like when you're dealing with a movie that's like about the fucking atomic bomb as well like the audience like you could be as dumb as a fucking rock and like know the ultimate course of what happens there like again i do think the follow-up paranoia stuff is good and i like that we sort of linger with a character because like i i do think it's necessary to some extent because we see him sort of obfuscate the the moral questions at the beginning of the atomic bomb him sort of being like oh like he he's always like touting the line of like well like the nazis are gonna do it first which like again like like that is uh the solid argument to push there in that situation but he's never he's never actually wrestling with any of those ethical questions i mean as a person making the atomic bomb, I really doubt you would have you would want to wrestle with those ethical questions while you're doing it. Um, but it's very cowardly. And the fact that he is just avoiding it the whole fucking time until the end and we get just like you do need a little bit of sad sack him after the fact where his like importance is over like he's had his moment the government has kind of thrown him away and he gets just the rest of his life to be a sad little loser and be like oh fuck i really i don't know was that was that cool guys did i make the right decision there (laughs) (laughs) uh one last thing i want to touch on uh another bit of casting matthew modine uh, totally meta casting. Christopher Nolan's talked about how Kubrick is his favorite filmmaker. A lot of people have talked about this movie in relation to Doctor Strangelove. Frankly, I'm not a big Doctor Strangelove fan. It's kind of the thing with uh, De Palma that we were talking about with comedies, and I forgot what other filmmaker we talked about this with recently, where it's like all their movies are funny, so when they try to make a comedy, it's kind of weird to me. Um, Doctor Strangelove is one of those to me. Uh, but it reminds me of Full Metal Jacket, of course, because of Matthew Modine. Uh, but that just kind of forces any thinking movie fan to consider the history of the depiction of military involvement on film. Uh, think about like what the canon classics are and where they come down on morally. Uh, and I think this is definitely in line with Kubrick. Uh, I think also... Re- I rewatched Full Metal Jacket like two days after I saw Oppenheimer and I, I I reconsidered the ending. I was like, you know what? Maybe the ending isn't after the most dramatically impactful part of the movie, just like Full Metal Jacket isn't. Uh, a lot of people think, oh, Full Metal Jacket, that movie's not good because the first half is so much better. I think the second half of that one uh, informs the first one even more. You know, the 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 first half the is the mindset that you get for the second half. So I think the mindset that uh, the test sequence gives you is really important for the third act of this film and, you know, made me judge it a little less harsh. Uh, and I, th- I think it like it's a it's a pretty great film. I'm teetering between three and a half and four. 
but it's definitely one of Nolan's best work and like one of the best movies of the year for sure. Yeah, no, I'm going full four bullets as well for this one. Or I mean, I guess you said teetering, so, but I'm going full hog, four bullets. It's great. Yeah, I'm just really curious to see where Nolan's going to go after this. I feel like maybe I didn't touch on as much. I'm, I I did a little bit with like the kind of politics of it, but this is such a strange type of big blockbuster movie that it's just baffling. Like no one gets like as long of a leash as like Nolan does to just sort of like explore his own interests here. And again, like obviously there are mm-hmm. things about this movie that are like going to like make like I don't know to going to draw in an audience and like I think there's a lot of an insane amount of marketing behind the film as well that have like made it a success but it's just very very strange that it's like a hit movie like I and that Nolan is like kind of kind of pulled back from doing like again like talking about like Tenant and even something like more emotional like Interstellar those are still like genre like action like films there uh, or I mean action sci-fi whatever but uh mm-hmm. this is again like more like straight dramatics and I'm curious if he's going to just uh, not just go back to doing the same thing because I don't want to say that he's not good at it or if he's going to try and follow it up with more be keep on the big boy pants go in serious mode more i either way i'll be there for it uh and until then the last half bullet between three and a half and four will continue to spin like a top per the end of inception (laughs) um we will see you next time on extended clip thank you very much for listening (laughs)